Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer continues in the series, A Life That Pleases God. Faith, as described in Hebrews 11.1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We are on a journey to investigate what a life that lives by faith looks like. Today we find out why Abel's faith is still a voice for our time in the first step of faith. If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here is Heath with today's message, The First Step of Faith. I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4. And if you want, go ahead and take your bulletin and stuff it in the first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 4. Because we'll be going there at some point in time in the service as well. We're in Hebrews chapter 11. We've been studying what faith is. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, we defined faith in as much as one can. And then after defining what faith is, we moved on to what faith does. Faith, as faith is beginning to coalesce and form in our lives, it begins with an understanding, awareness that God exists. That all the matter around us didn't just happen by accident. It didn't just coalesce by chance, but that it, it was the, all the work of a sovereign God. And so we have, but, and yet we have to go beyond that because that's not saving faith yet, you understand. Just believing that God exists and believing that he created all things here on earth is not enough to get you to heaven. It does not forgive sins. It's a reasonable and logical conclusion given nature, the complexity of nature, and even examining of scientific laws. It's a reasonable conclusion, but it won't save you. Remember in James chapter 2 and verse 19, the Bible says, you believe that God is one, you do well. But who also believes that? Demons. Are we going to be sharing a piece of heaven? Am I going to be living next door to a demon in heaven? No, then. They're not born again. They're not regenerate. And yet they have a full understanding and awareness that God exists. And so just saying, I believe in God. I believe that there's a creator over us is not saving faith. That's the faith of the Masonic Lodge. They just, they don't care who, where you come from. Just believe in whatever. And that's good enough. It's the faith of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, as long as you believe in a sovereign God, you know, they great. It's the faith of the Boy Scouts. As long as you believe in some higher being of some mystic force above us, that's great. But that's not saving faith. It's not the kind of faith that you can lean on and rely on. It's simply the first step toward putting your faith in Christ. It's your first step toward accepting and receiving for yourself the sacrifice that God has prepared for us. And that is what saves. And that is what we're going to be studying today. We're going to be studying the sacrifices of Cain and Abel. And so first we're going to look at the sacrifice of Abel because his is the sacrifice of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. If you went to Sunday school as a child, you probably heard the story Cain and Abel. It's it's the very first story after the creation of Adam and Eve. If you're going through the golden book of children's stories, mom and dad reading to your kids, you read about the creation of the world, you read about Adam and Eve, and then you come to the story of inevitably Cain and Abel, the story you appealed to as to why you shouldn't fight as brothers and sisters. Cain and Abel. There are two contrasts. You have those, the one who is righteous, the one who is wicked. 
the one who followed God, the one who did his own thing. So in this story, we understand that their parents, Adam and Eve, the first man and the woman, God created them, placed them in the middle of a beautiful garden and said, enjoy all that I've given you, but I'm going to give you one command. Don't eat of that tree in the center of the garden. In the day that you eat of it, you will die. Well, they broke his law, and they were, for that one sin, they were cast out of the presence of God. And after they had left the Garden of Eden, they established their life. They had many, many children, among whom were Cain and Abel, which, by the way, if there's any skeptics listening to this right now, they always think, they think that they can stump the Bible saying, where did Cain get his wife? Well, Adam and Eve had many children. You know, where was Abel going to get his wife? You know, same place. And that's long before our DNA got corrupted to the place where it is. It's why our laws say you can't marry your first cousin, your brothers and sisters today, but you could back then. It was a clean genetic line. And so they had these children. You had Cain and Abel. And, uh, but there was, a, there was a point in time where human needed a sacrifice for their sins. The very first sacrifice in the Bible, understand, came by God's own hand. Adam and Eve, they broke the rule that God gave them. They said, in the day that you eat of it, that Hebrew word yom that we studied last week, it's a literal 24-hour period. In the day that you eat of it, you will die. And often we explain it away. Well, they didn't really die. They just began the death process. That isn't what God said. In fact, that Hebrew word for die there actually means to execute. There are certain places you can go in this nation and certain crimes you can commit, and if you do them, you will, you will go to the electric chair or you'll be hung or do they still use firing squads today? I don't know, but that's what it means. God says, in that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, obviously, you and I are here today, so Adam and Eve did not get executed that day. Why not? Because we also read that God, because of their sin, killed an animal, didn't he? In Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. How do you get a garment of skin? You don't find it growing naturally in nature, do you? There's no skin trees that I'm aware of. You, you have to kill an animal to do that. Because of their sin, God took the life of an animal or animals, and then he covered Adam and Eve in the clothing of this innocent animal. And it was a picture of what God would do someday with Jesus. And Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. And we would be clothed or covered in the innocence of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 61.10 says that, that we are clothed with the garments of salvation. More on that later. And so long before the Aaronic priesthood, long before the, the Levitical priests, long before the tabernacle and the temple and all these other things, clearly at the beginning of time, God was having them offer sacrifices by faith, looking to that time, Genesis 3.15, that God promised he would send a Messiah to die in their place who would crush the serpent's head and who would bruise his heel. It's called the first gospel. And so by offering this bloody sacrifice in the way that God asked him to, we read that Cable, or Abel was commended. We studied commended a few weeks back. It means that a higher authority above you has looked at what you did and said, you are walking in obedience to what we've asked. You're a good example of what we're looking for, like in the military, a medal of commendation. Abel was seeking the commendation of God, and by which it says that he was called righteous. So seeking the commendation of God is what leads us to a righteous standing. We have to, by faith, if we're going to live by faith, you have to care what God thinks about your life. You have to care that God is pleased in all circumstances, more than even yourself being pleased. 
If your only concern in life is that at the end of your life, God is pleased and happy with how you live, or every day, every moment, you're pleased with every decision you're making, that it pleases God, that's a good indicator that you're living by faith. If, however, in your life, you're the kind of person where you have to be pleased at all times, that it has to be my way or I'm going to be angry. It's going to be my way or I'm going to create a fuss. It's got to be my way at home. It's got to be my way when we're deciding where to go out to eat. It's got to be my way when we go to work. It's got to be my way when I come to church. It's got to be my way when I go to Walmart and shop. It's got to be my way. That's a good indicator that Jesus is not the Lord of your life, but that you are. Because we want ourselves to be pleased. Sometimes even more than God. I've heard stories with people, you know, they've been serving in a church and they'll be showing people very clearly from the God's word, this is what God's word says. And church folks who have told them and said, we know what God's word says, but around here we do it this way. Those are terrifying words, friends. We do it God's way. We seek to, for God to be pleased. And when we're doing that, it's because Jesus is enthroned in the heart of our life. We don't care whether I'm pleased as much as we are that Jesus is happy with what we're doing. Well, Abel clearly was very was, was seeking that. He was seeking the, the commendation of God. He was seeking the pleasure of God. And by this, God says, you then, Abel, are walking by faith, and I commend you. In fact, I'm going to do something special for you. I'm going to declare you righteous. Righteous means that you are in a right standing before a legal authority. If any of you came to church today and you did not speed, not too many of us probably, if you did not speed on the way to church today, you are righteous. You you are in right standing with the law. Had a policeman been watching you, he could have pulled over probably any number of us, but he did not. but it says here that Abel was right, declared righteous by God. He is legally set free. He is, another term we use is justified. It means that you, God has declared you not guilty. By the way, it's important that we receive that, stand, that standing from God and not ourselves. Is it enough that I think I'm a good person? Is it enough that I think I'm righteous or that I think I'm good enough to go to heaven? Does that get anywhere with God? Are you, and I guess I'd have to ask you the question, are you sovereign and omnipotent? Are you omniscient? Are you in control and in power of all things? Well, then your opinion matters. But if you're like me, a weak, vile, sinful human being, then I need to make sure that I'm right in front of the righteous judge in what he says. It's sort of like, remember back in 94, 95, the O.J. Simpson murder trials? Anybody remember those? The Bronco, the gloves, and all that kind of stuff. Everybody in America, you, you know, around the water cooler, everybody's having that conversation. What do you think? Did he do it? Did he kill his wife? I think he did. Absolutely. I don't think he did. In the end, what does it matter? The judge acquitted him. If it does not fit, you must acquit. Remember that? So it doesn't matter what you and I think at the water cooler, whether or not OJ is guilty or innocent. It doesn't matter today what we think of him because the judge hit the gavel on his desk and said, not guilty. He's acquitted. He's Released, he's set free. The law now has no legal demands against him. You're not gonna, he's not gonna be executed. He's not gonna be put in jail. He's not even gonna get a slap on the wrist. He is acquitted. And that is this term righteous, that he is justified. So if you wanna be in a right standing before God, you have to have God declare you uh, not guilty. It's not enough just that we think we're a good person. God has to declare us righteous. Well, let's look more closely at what God said about Abel in Genesis chapter 4. So if you want to flip back to the beginning of your Bible, first book, hopefully you marked it, chapter 4. In verse 1, it says, Now Adam knew his Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, 
saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of, and this is important, the fruit of the ground. Abel is going to be different. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And it says the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. That word regard, again, just means that God accepted. He approved of Abel's sacrifice. We don't know a whole lot about Abel. I mean, that's why there's only one story in your children's book of Bible stories about Abel. We don't know a lot. He's the younger brother of Cain. He was a shepherd. And he offered to God the sacrifice God demanded. And so Abel was declared righteous. And so Abel is, lives a fairly, as far as Bible characters go, a very small life. We don't know him for much. And, but you know that's enough? There may be a lot of us here today where maybe in high school you had these great ambitions. I'm going to go out and change the world. I'm going to be the biggest this, or I'm going to be the biggest that. And, and maybe toward the end of our lives, we get to middle age, or maybe in older years, we start looking back and I'm like, what does my life really mattered? Have I really accomplished those goals that I set out to do? Friends, if your life is like the life of Abel, and you're just a simple shepherd, a brother of somebody somewhere, but you are declared righteous by God, friends, you're living a significant life. Doesn't matter where you live, Ashland, Kentucky, you know, Beijing, China, or New York City, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what your career path is. You can live a significant life before God if God declares you righteous. And that's exactly what he did for Abel. It says of Abel that he brought the firstborn of his flocks and their fat portions. And so clearly there's a sacrificial system here that God began and that God had certain expectations of this sacrificial system. He had communicated them orally to man. There was not a written Bible yet at this time, but God was, you know, communicating directly with his people. There's a, there's a clear expectation of what they should be offering by way of sacrifice. And Abel clearly offered God what he desired, and that was the death of an innocent animal, the best of his flock, and the best portion of that animal, the fat. Now, it's often been asked, why does God allow blood sacrifice? Doesn't that make God a bloody God? Doesn't that make him a violent God? How dare he hurt animals in this way? Isn't God a cruel God? Well, first of all, we have to kind of absolve ourselves of this worldview that animals and humans are on the same level. They're not. You are far more, of far more value than the animals. How can I say that? Because Jesus said that. Talked about these sparrows who die and two are sold for a, you know, a penny. He says, are you of not more value than they? So friends, don't listen to the worldly ideology that says humans are a blight to the planet. We should be eradicated. It should just be allowed mother nature to go on without humankind. Friends, understand that the world was put here so that man could live on it, exercise dominion over it. So if you want to go hunting, go hunting. With God's blessing, if you want to have a dog, that's great. But understand that, don't be one of these Christians who say, I love dogs more than people. Can I say that you and Jesus disagree on that one? You can love your dog. I'm not saying don't enjoy a little Fido and pet him and give him your little treats. You know, have your thing. But animals are not at the same level as humans. Animals are not made in the image of God. We have to go back to nature to learn that. But society would have us to believe that we're the worst thing that ever happened to the world, when in fact, we are the one thing in this world that Jesus died for. We've got to make sure we're not getting our cues from the world. The world is messed up. I don't know if you noticed that yet or not. This world's pretty mixed up. Well, it's often been asked, why did God offer animal sacrifice? For that, you've got to go to the book of Leviticus. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I have to tell you, because even though it's the third book of the Bible, you still probably don't know where it is, because when you decide to read through the Bible in a year, you enter into Leviticus, and Leviticus is Death Valley for Christians. You know what I'm saying? You started out in Leviticus hoping for some real gems you were going to mine from that book of the Bible. Very few, you know, a lot of men enter Leviticus, but very few escape on the other side. You know, you die in your Bible, Bible reading somewhere in Leviticus because we just don't understand why God needs to teach me how to skin a goat. And so that's where it leaves us in Leviticus. But Leviticus is an important book in the Bible. It's, uh, it actually reveals to us why we need to offer blood sacrifice, why God demands it. In Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11, he says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you uh, for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And so long before, as scientists, we realized that blood is our life source, that it transmits oxygen and nutrition, it removes waste material from the body. Long before we realized how vital blood was, the Bible is declaring life is in the blood. And so when there is a capital offense against God, it has to be life for life. And that blood represents that life. There's no blood in asparagus. There's no blood in corn. Biology majors out there. There's no blood in that. And so God demands life for life, an innocent for the guilty. And that's why, that's why he requires that in Deuteronomy 19.21. Um, he says, furthermore, it's required for atonement. It's a word that means to cover or to reconcile. Uh, every year on the Day of Atonement, the priest would go in with some blood and the hyssop, and he would, he would sprinkle blood. He would cover, if you will, the Ark of the Covenant. And that blood sacrifice, a life for a life, was able to reconcile man and God together. Now, that, that blood didn't save us. The Bible says the blood of animals cannot save, but it was the act of faith in offering God the sacrifice he demanded that saved us. And it was a picture of the sacrifice that Jesus would be for us one day. He would be our Passover lamb. Hebrews 9.22 clarifies the importance of blood sacrifice. He says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So if you have a bloodless religion, a bloodless gospel, with just this, this, this easy believism, loving God gospel, but you don't really focus on the blood of Jesus, friends, you have no gospel at all. Because without the, forgiving, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We cannot be made right with God apart from it. Not the blood of animals, which was by faith, not the blood without the blood of Jesus. So Genesis chapter four speaks of Abel's offering. It says he brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Why do we give God their fat portions? Well, because that's also in the book of Leviticus, which by the way, the theme of Leviticus is sanctification. How do we take you and I where we are today, sinful and in a wrong standing with God, and how do we bring us over here into a right standing with God, made like God, think like God, act like God? Well, Leviticus shows us the, the sacrificial system. And he says in chapter 3 and verse 16, all fat is the Lord's. Clearly, I belong to the Lord. <laughs> Wasn't supposed to be that funny. but It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you, neither, that you eat neither the fat nor the blood. It's right here in the law code. The fat belongs to God. Now, some of you guys are squirming in your seats. Because last night you went out and had a ribeye. 
I just ate a lot of fat there. Am I okay with God? Understand that this was part of the Old Testament, which was a shadow of things to come. It was fulfilled in Christ. And in Acts chapter 10, God let the sheet down from the sky to Peter and said, let nothing that I've created be called unclean. So if you want to go out there and have a ribeye, if you want to go out there and eat shrimp, go right ahead with God's blessing. This was part of the dietary law code to set apart the nation of Israel. That's why we don't still follow it today. It's not repeated in the New Testament. So we're not bound to that. But it does communicate something that he says the fat belongs to the Lord. And the reason is Numbers chapter 28, 24 describes the fat of the animals as a food offering unto God. We're offering to God the flavorful part. It's why you guys like to eat ribeye. It's that nice marbling you get through there. And that fat provides the flavor and this richness. If you have a really lean cut of meat, it's good for your health doesn't usually taste quite as good. And so the fat belonged to the Lord. And so when people would give to the Lord through the sacrificial system and give to the Lord through the priests, uh, the priests were actually permitted to eat a part of that. It's kind of like what we do here at church. You give to the Lord through the church, and part of that portion is given to not the priests, but the pastors. And we enjoy some of that. But even the pastors, we give back to the Lord. We give our tithes and our offerings. We give the fat back to God. We recognize that all this abundance and blessing that we have, and that's what fat is. It's a picture of the abundance of God. You didn't get fat unless God fed you well. God often even referred to the fat of the land, that you're doing well for yourself. We give of the fat to the Lord. We recognize that the reason that I'm struggling with my weight is because of the blessing of God. And so I'm going to give back to the Lord. The fat and the blood, it all belongs to the Lord, the life and the blessing. Now, when Abel offered an animal sacrifice, uh, he was giving its blood and the fat to the Lord. And it says in Hebrews 11:4 that God commended him for that. He was walking and living by faith. He was approaching God his way. And when you're a sovereign power, you can do that. You approach God his way. You don't get to approach God any old way you want. Some of you guys have probably visited the White House a time or two. Maybe you've even gone on a tour. I'm not sure what you have to do. I think you have to go with like background checks and things. And, and there's a certain way you've got to do it. You can only approach the White House the way the White House says you can. You go and you get these checks and you get part of a tour group and they take you through the White House and you can see certain things. There's a certain door you come in, there's a certain door you go out and you have to do it their way. Anybody try sneaking into the back door of the White House before? There's nobody giving testimony of that today because you'd get shot. When you are the White House, you're a sovereign power, you can say how people approach you. We understand that with the White House, say, yeah, I get that. But with God, somehow humans, we don't get that message. Well, God is the ultimate sovereign power over the, all the universe, but I'm going to backdoor God. I'm going to come in to heaven my way. I'm going to get to heaven however I choose. God demands a blood sacrifice. I find that icky. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to backdoor my way into heaven, and I'm going to find my own path. I'm going to choose my truth. By the way, there's no such thing as your truth. There's either truth that you discover and submit to, or it's not truth at all. And so truth is not something that we declare. It's not something we say is ours. I don't get to decide because when we become those who decide truth, we're the final arbiters of truth that makes us God. Only God can decide what is true. And then we become judges of the word of God and not doers. So truth is something you discover. It's something you submit to. If it's something you discovered, it's not truth. It's called opinion. It's an opinion. And opinions won't save you. But it is not going to stop Cain from trying. God clearly outlined a path to come back to him through blood sacrifice. Cain had a better idea. Cain calls an audible. God, I'm going to offer you this instead. So now let's look, number two, at the sacrifice of Cain. 
In Genesis 4 and verse 3, it says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Yes. But for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. Remember, regard for Abel was God accepted his sacrifice. This Hebrew word, no regard, means that God cannot look upon it. It's not what he asked for. It's not what he demanded. It's not what he required. And so it is unacceptable to God. This sacrifice of grain, God asked for an animal. Cain says, no, I'm going to give you an offering of something that I grew, of my own good works, something that I created, something I built, I grew, I raised. I'm going to give you what I think you should have, God. And for this, it says God had no regard. It's not what I asked for. It's kind of like if you guys ever gone out to eat. And maybe you're, you know, some, we got a lot of meat eaters in this place. I don't know if you know about a church, but uh, we got our Rick Mustard types and our Brad types and our other types. You know, and they just, they love the grilled food, smoked meat. And uh, they go out to dinner and they order maybe a prime rib and they're waiting on their prime rib and they're having a lovely discussion with their wife, which is interrupted by the waitress putting down a plate in front of you of a wedge salad. Laziest salad ever designed by man. You cut it into four pieces and say, here, make your own salad. You know, it's a wedge salad. I despise the concept of a wedge salad. I will never eat a wedge salad. Now, how one of our meat-eating guys in this room who ordered prime rib and got a wedge salad is, if you understand how they feel, you understand how God feels about the sacrifice. There is no regard. You look at this wedge salad, you're disappointed, you're shocked, you're sad, you're surprised. Maybe you're upset, maybe you're angry. This is not what I asked for. This is not what I ordered. This is not what I paid for. And what are you going to do with that wedge salad? You take this back, and I want you to throw it in the dirtiest trash can you have. And I want you to bring me my prime rib. That is what the New Testament is saying about the sacrifice of, of Cain here, that I'm going to offer God what I want. God has no regard. He looks at it like a wedge salad. This is not what I asked for. It's not what I wanted. It's not acceptable, and I'm sending it back. Cain's offering was not by faith. Cain's offering was by sight. Cain's offering was of his own works and his own flesh, and that's what Cain's offering is. It's a work of the flesh. I'm gonna do something good for God that seems right to me, seems logical to me, reasonable to me, and I'm gonna offer that to God, and I'm expecting that God will accept what I think is acceptable. That's a scary place to be. He's ought, because this is an offering of grain. It's an offering of works. Do men still offer God the offering of Cain? an offering of grain, an offering of works, all the time, don't they? Talk to somebody about Jesus. Hey, if you were to die today, do you know that you're going to heaven? Hey, I sure do. Great. Why are you going to heaven? Well, I've been a good person. And then they give you their resume. I'd like you to check out my resume here. Of all, look on page three where I helped an old lady cross the street and uh, page six where I raised up a baby squirrel to adulthood and released him. Because of those acts, God clearly owes me heaven. I'm a righteous man in my own estimation. Or maybe they'll say, I go to church. You know, one time on Easter, I felt really led of the Lord to give five bucks to the Lord. And so I know I'm insured a place in heaven. Or maybe I've come to church for 30 years off and on. I'm a member of a church because my name is on a membership card in a church somewhere. I'm good with God. Can I tell you, friends, your name on a, in a membership card in a church never saved a person in, in your life. It's nowhere in the Bible. 
It's not enough to just have a name on a membership in a church. It's more important that you're a member of the body of Christ, that you're truly born again and saved. And having your name on a card does not ensure that. It could very well be your offering of Cain. I'm offering God good works. Look what I've done. I've been baptized. Look what I've done. I've, I've, I've helped in VBS. Look what I've done. I've, I've come to church and I've tolerated Unity Baptist Church's sermons. That's got to count for something with God. But it's an offering of Cain. God is not going to accept it. He does not regard Cain's offering because it is an offering of works. Can people be saved by works? The good works, the efforts of their own hands. Galatians 2.16 three times says no. He says, we know, so something we're confident, we're certain of, that a person is not justified, declared righteous by God. They are not justified by the works of the law, obeying the things that the, the, work, the book of the law tells you to. Just simply obedience to that, you're never good enough. The law was never intended to save. It's meant to reveal the sin in your life and that you, can't, that you need a savior. He says, but through the faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. That's how we're saved, by faith and belief in Jesus Christ. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And in case you missed it, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, if you were submitting this as a paper to an English teacher, she would have counted off for repetition. Three times. Did you get it? Not by works of the law, not by works of the law, not by works of the law, by the works of the law, no one will be justified in his sight. So friends, if you're sitting there in the pew today and your confidence that you're going to heaven is because you're a good person or because you went to church or you're a member of a church somewhere that you haven't been in 15 years or that you, know, somebody, you, you chanted a prayer with somebody but your heart wasn't in it, Friends, we're offering God up, an offering of grain, an offering of our good works, and God says we cannot be justified in that way. You tell somebody that, though, who's trusting in their good works, that that's not good enough to get them with God, how are they going to feel? They're probably going to be mad because they've worked very hard to get this right standing with God. They're going to be very upset. I want you to see how mad uh, Cain gets here in verse 6. God tells him, you know, basically that I'm not, I have no regard for your sacrifice, Verse 6, so Cain was very angry, just like people will be with you. And his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? God even gives him a, chance, a mulligan here. Hey, back it up. Give me the right sacrifice. If you, if you don't, you know, if like Abel, you just offer me what I asked for like Abel did, will you not be in a good place? But he won't do that. Why was Cain angry? Because he had no intention of obeying God. He wanted to approach God his way. He was creating his own religion, his own way to get to God. And that, by the way, friends, is every other religion in the world. It is trying to find a human, man-made way to approach God. I will come to God on my terms. But friends, the bad news of the Bible is this. God will not accept any other way other than Jesus Christ. God said that. And so if you're a Buddhist and you're hoping that the noble eightfold path is going to get you there, it won't. If you're a Muslim and you're hoping that the four pillars of Islam are going to get you to heaven, they won't. If you're hanging out with Tom Cruise and Scientology and doing crazy stuff with engrams and whatever else they got, you know, it's all nonsense, by the way. Uh, you're, you're doing all these other things these other religions tell you to do to get right with God. Friends, by the works of the law will no flesh be justified in his sight. You can only come to God his way. 
There's one way to God. And when you're a sovereign power, you get to decide that. I'll give you an illustration. Years ago, my family and I, we lived in China. You know, we were overseas for 13 years, and we lived in China for a while, and we were living in the capital city of Kunming, Yunnan province, southwest China, bordering Laos and Vietnam. And, and we decided we wanted a vacation. We were tired, but we were also poor. So we took a cheap way to do vacation. So we hopped a bus and drove on the bus 24 hours on a bus, not as fun as it sounds, and all the way into Chiang Mai, Thailand, which is one of our favorite places to play. It, Thailand's a wonderful country, it's a lot of fun. So we went there for a week and we enjoyed our, our vacation. It was time to wrap it up and come back. It was around uh, Chinese New Year that year, Spring Festival. And so we're coming back into China overland by bus. And so we leave Thailand, we're going through Laos, we get to the Boten uh, Mohan border and it's time to do our border crossing to go into China and to drive back home, the last leg of the journey. Now, there's a few things you need to understand about this circumstance. The Laos visa that you need, the permission you need to get into the country is a single entry visa. So once those guys stamp it, you're not coming back into Laos. Okay. Well, the bus pulls up, and because we had little children with us, it takes a while when kids have been kind of reclining, you know, in the bus, and they've got to wrangle their shoes back on. Hey, why didn't you get that together? You know we're stopping, and you know you're hurrying and trying to get your kids together, and off the bus. We were the last ones off the bus. We go through the line, and we get our visas stamped. We're done with Laos. We're moving on home to China. The other thing you need to know about this border crossing, it's not, I don't want you to picture this border crossing like most border crossings. One big building, one side's Laos, one side's China. Not like that. Where it was is in the middle of this jungle, honestly, and that's what Laos and southern Yunnan is like. And so we got this little path going through a, a jungle, and on one side of the path is the Laos border with just Laos, Laotian people and their government. We went through that, and then what you do is you hop on your bus and you drive a half a mile up the road to the, Thai, or to the China border with just Chinese people, and they check you in. Well, we got done checking out of Laos, and we discovered as we're grabbing our bags, hello, where's our bus? He took off without us. You see, the bus knew something we didn't know, that this was spring festival and they were starting to close their borders early because there were a lot of Chinese guys who couldn't wait to set off some firecrackers. And so they were gonna head out early. So our bus driver took off and left us here. So we, we were trekking with our bags a half mile up to the Chinese border. And our bus uh, had gone through, but he was on the other side waiting for people to get through. And, and uh, their policemen are going through all the people's bags and rummaging through it. And I noticed in the corner of my eye at the, the one door getting into China, this glass door, there was a policeman standing there with the padlock and chain in his hand. Because that's what they do in China. They have these big bars and they just, they chain the doors up. He had the chain in hand. And I panicked. I mean, you ever just feel that flush of adrenaline? Like, I need to go into hyper mode here or we're gonna die. And the thought going through my head was, if he locks this door, we're in trouble. I cannot legally enter Laos because they already stamped my passport and I cannot legally enter China. And this is what we were stuck in. What are you gonna do with your family right there? You're just gonna hang out, sit on your suitcases for 18 hours overnight in a land not patrolled by China, not patrolled by Laos and with wild animals? You're not gonna do that, are you? At panic mode, plus our bus is gone, we have no ride back. And so I grabbed my suitcases and I ran as fast as I could up to the door. And just as I got to the glass door, I saw the policeman and he locked it. And so 
I just got, I got needy and desperate, and I just kind of played the ignorant foreigner card, and I started banging the door and begging with him. In, fortunately, I spoke Chinese at that time, and I'm begging with him in Chinese, pleading with him to open the door, and he wouldn't open it for the other Chinese people there, but he felt bad for me, and he was going to let this one lone American back in. Problem was, my family was still down the road, and so... I, I stood in the doorway, and I kind of pushed up against the policeman holding the door open as I began to shout and call out to my family, hey, they're closing the door. You don't want to get stuck in the jungle all night. You're going to die. Run. Seriously, run. And so they're, they're coming up to the door, and I'm, the policeman's trying to push me back out at this point. He's like, I don't have time to let you and all your friends in, so you just get out there and spend the night in the jungle. And so I'm just holding the policeman up against the door, and eventually my family gets through, and I just kind of pull off and, and apologize to him, and he's frustrated, and he locks the door. And my passport was the very last one stamped. The point I'm trying to make is this. There was one way to get into China, and that policeman was standing in the way of me and the law and me and the jungle and me dying, and I had to stand there in the gap holding the door open for my family to get in. For the life and the safety of my family, I had to hold that door open and hold back the police who justifiably were going to push everyone out and say, you're done. This is what Jesus right now is doing for us. The law of God says we're all sinners. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The law of God says they deserve hell. God, judge them. But the patience and the long-suffering of God, God has delayed that judgment. Why is there so much evil in the world? It's because of God's love. Follow me on this. There's so much evil in the world. Why hasn't God judged it right away? Because you are still evil and I am still evil. And if God judged it right away, how many of you guys would be in hell right now? Or if God judged sin 10 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, how many of you would be in hell? It's the long suffering of God who permits the other evil in the world so that the evil in our hearts can be forgiven. And right now, there is a brief, narrow window of time where Jesus is standing in the way of the righteous demands of the law to punish us and our ability to be forgiven and enter in and be stamped approved. Don't waste that time. We don't have forever. There's going to come a day when that door will be closed and that door will be locked. And you'll have people crying out on the other side of the door like I saw that day. Families weeping, banging on the door, begging, pleading for mercy. And it was too late. They had locked the door. That someday is going to be you and I standing before God. And if you're not in a right standing with God right now, we don't have a guarantee that we have forever. Right now, Jesus is holding that door open. But someday, Jesus is going to step aside and allow them to shut that door. And it's going to be locked. And there won't be a second chance. There is no purgatory in the Bible. Well, Hebrews 11.4 says, Listen to the testimony of Abel. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so the life of Abel, this example in Genesis 4 and Hebrews 11, calls out from the grave, repent. Don't try to offer God some sacrifice that you came up with, some religious system that man came up with. Offer God the bloody, awful sacrifice that he provided through Jesus Christ, who came and lived a sinless life, who was, who was beaten till he was unrecognizable and his organs were visible and blood was coming down him and then they pierced him to the cross and they allowed him to stand there naked and destroyed in front of the mankind he came to die for and as he's choking on his own juices for you and I, he's still calling out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. 
Abel is calling to us today. There's only one sacrifice that God's going to accept, and it's not the sacrifice of your own good works, the sacrifice of grain, the sacrifice from your own hands and your own efforts and your own thinking, your own reasoning and logic. The sacrifice God accepts is simply the sacrifice of Jesus, the offering of blood, for without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that as we study your word, you have revealed to us the path that leads to life. And even today, each one of us who sits here, we are presented with two options, an offering of blood through Jesus or an offering of grain and our own good works. That we're gonna get to you, to get to God, get to heaven, get to eternal life through our own efforts, our own goodness, our own deeds, or we're going to trust in what Jesus did for us. God, I pray this morning that if there are any who are trying to get into heaven their own way, discovering their own truth, their own thoughts, their own ideas, what is reasonable to them, God, would you reveal to them the truth that's already been shared in the scriptures and help them to submit their life to that truth? As we this Memorial Weekend remember the fallen who have died to secure our freedom, help us this weekend to remember the one, the ultimate one who died to give us freedom in Christ. And if there's any here today, God, that do not know you, I pray today would be their day of salvation. As Hebrews 3 says, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. God, draw all men to you, we pass your presence. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.